Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. This week, our topic is Raising Children's Voices. First, we'll be joined in the studio by Carmen Agraditi, one of America's foremost storytellers. Carmen is the author of Martina the Beautiful Cockroach and the best-selling 14 Cows for America. Today, she'll introduce her new picture book, The Rooster Who Would Not Be Quiet, and share her unique coming-of-age story. Later, we'll talk with a second-grade teacher about the ways that she makes sure every child in her classroom feels heard. Here's Carmen reading an excerpt from The Rooster Who Would Not Be Quiet. Once there was a village where the streets rang with song from morning till night. Dogs bayed, mothers croon, engines hummed, Fountains warbled, and everybody sang in the shower. Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. Everyone and everything had a song to sing. This made the village of La Paz a very noisy place. It was hard to hear. It was hard to sleep. It was hard to think. And no one knew what to do. So they fired the mayor. Now they were a very noisy village without a mayor. So they held an election. Only Don Pepe promised peace and quiet. He won by a landslide. The very next day, a very polite law appeared in the village square. No loud singing in public, por favor. Things were getting better already. But more laws soon followed. Mm-mm-mm. No loud singing at home. Um, no loud singing. Okay, no singing. Ay, 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 basta, quiet already. Until finally, the noisy village of La Paz was silent as a tomb. Even the tea kettles were afraid to whistle. Some people left the village singing loudly. Others stayed behind and learned to hum. The rest were just grateful to have a good night's sleep for crying out loud. Seven very quiet years passed. Then one evening, a saucy gallito and his family wandered into the village and roosted in a fragrant mango tree. When the little rooster awoke the next morning, he did what roosters were born to do. He sang, Kikiriki! And that's how the trouble started. You can probably guess what happens next. An outraged Don Pepe tries everything he can to silence the rooster. But in the end, the power of song triumphs, and the tiny village of La Paz rallies behind the brave rooster. Something tells me, Carmen, that you're a little bit like the rooster. Could you tell us the inspiration behind this tale? This story began, strangely enough, about a dozen years ago. And it happened uh, when I first became involved with um, Amnesty International. And um, just before I became a member of Penn. And my own family came 
in the aftermath of the Cuban Revolution. The story is not a political one, at least not as this author sees it. It's very much one about uh, that began as a human rights story, a story about freedom of speech, freedom of the press, you know, how important it is to give voice to those with whom we agree, but more importantly, or I should say more critically, those with whom we disagree, which gives this a very dark tone in a way, right? And it's a picture book. So like all good stories, as they're retold, they evolve. And what happened was that that lens I was looking at the story through sort of became um, a prism. And I started, as I worked with children over the last you know, couple of decades, seeing that 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 feeling that you can and should speak your mind when your conscience urges you to. I mean, there are times to be quiet, times to be still. And then there are times when we should speak or and even must speak. That that begins as a child. Um, I don't think we're all born with conscience. I think for most of us, conscience is something that's awakened. So when I was a young mother, and I first started getting involved in amnesty and pen and so forth. At first, it was a feel-good kind of thing, but I was also trying to explore the organizations, the people that did this sort of thing, wondering how they did it. And I've always wondered the path that each person took. Was it like mine? Was it different? And this strange and this uncanny thing happened. I was at a Cuban restaurant in my little town, and this young man waited on me. He was very quiet. And after the end of the meal, in the very Cuban and Southern way, I asked him what his name was. We talked to weight people. We asked them about their families, their children, their ailments, their, their, you know, their kidney failure, their bunions. It doesn't matter. I couldn't draw much out of him, but he told me his name was Ulysses. Of course, I'm a reader, right? And, and I immediately thought, oh, my God, of course, it's Ulysses. What else could it be? I asked him a little bit about how, where he came from. He didn't speak English. And he said, oh, I arrived lately. Where this is going? And it's inexorably going to one point. It took months, but I was able to slowly, slowly draw his story from him. He was a prisoner of conscience. As a young man, he had burned the Soviet flag and the Cuban flag. His father was in the military. He was arrested. He was a teenager. He was 16. His father refused to speak to him. And then Amnesty got involved the day he was supposed to have a meeting with them. And he explained to me the things that happened to him. And the things that happened to him are what happened to this rooster. First, you lose your freedom. Then they don't let you see your family. Then they take away your food. Then they put you in the dark. That's why the page in the book that's black, that has the rooster singing, is because there is no one in this world as courageous, as brave, as she or he who sings alone in the dark. Hearing his story was incredible because he said his father came to him that day he was to have that meeting, was very gruff in his manner. And when he went to hug him, he said, I won't see you again. He whispered in his ear and said, you did not burn the Cuban flag. You burned only the Soviet flag. And the Cuban flag caught fire by accident. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't answer me. And that's what he said in his meeting with other people present. So it was actually an, a patriotic act. And that was the loophole that got him released. And eventually, he was able to come to the U.S. And so he, if there is a core story 
that was it. But over time, it grew and became the story about voice, about the right to a voice, the right to speech. The part of us that has to has to allow for room in this world for noise, even if we don't like the noise. Especially in the time we're living now, none of us like everything that's said. I don't. When there's time for us to speak, we speak. When someone else chooses to speak, we give them that right, and then we debate them. We debate them with, with, with knowledge, with ethos, with the power of truth. But we defend their right. We take a bullet for it. Because otherwise, we all lose. Wow, what an incredible story. Carmen, how did your own family come to the United States? We came when I was a little girl. We, we left legally. We came through Mexico. I was, I was um, very hungry. I will forever be grateful to the Mexican people because I brought my dress today. Uh, you can't see it on a podcast, but it's a little tiny checkered dress my grandmother made for me. And um, I was three years old, and that dress fit my granddaughter when she was 18 months old. And that tells you how starved I was. I mean, we're just the mal—we were so the, the malnutrition was terrible. We were on ration cards, so we got to Mexico, and these Mexican ladies out on the street with their tortillas would see me and would look at my sister and say, "Look at the little girls, eh? They are like little twigs. Pero mira las muchachapapitas, pobrecitas, eh? And they would hand us tortillas and sopapillas, and oh my God, I ate my way through Mexico City. I think I grew two inches in two months. And then we, we had visas, new visas that brought us here. Did your parents need to give a reason for leaving Cuba? The way that uh, it worked at the time, and I, you know, it, it has changed from time to time. And um, was, you, you, obviously, you can't just leave Cuba. Um, you had to go to the local police station uh, in your town or uh, the nearest one to you, and you would have to declare your intention of of. Uh, leaving, you would have to re- fill out your paperwork there, um, which of course made your local police aware that that you were uh, a dissident. And so it was two years after that that they finally got their papers, and it was a very difficult two years. Where did you end up settling? When we arrived in the U.S., we went uh, to Miami briefly, and my they thought my mother had tuberculosis. So we had to stay for uh, a couple of weeks while they waited uh, to, to see what was happening with her. And it was not that. Um, and so very quickly, we packed our things and our cousin brought us to Decatur, Georgia. Oh where, yes, I know, I know. It just, it seems so wrong. It's yeah. like, here we are all talking Espanol yeah. and my father has a little English. My mother has a little English. My sister and I have nothing. Um, and we are surrounded with these lovely sponsors, all who talk like that. Oh, Mr. Agra, Miss Agra, we are so glad you're here. God bless your hearts. Well, we have a lovely apartment for you. And the, our first apartment was the attic of a couple, an older couple from the First Baptist Church. And um, <laughs> it wasn't until I was a young woman and my first book was published that I was on that path that sometimes happens when you're older, you want to find out things about your childhood. I went back to visit the Leslies. They were gone. And then one day telling stories in a school, a woman appears. She is the daughter of Mr. Leslie. And I said, Mr. Leslie's, oh yes, she was, Mrs. Leslie was his second wife. They met in the war. I said, World War II? She said, oh yes, he was a GI 
And she had spent many years at Bergen-Bells. Oh, gosh. And that is why she took us in. So, of course, I go scurrying back to my parents. I said, Mrs. Leslie was in a concentration camp. I said, no, she was Jewish. My father said, she was not Jewish. I said, wait, 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 why was she in a concentration camp? Her father was a, a, a sailor on the road. I said, a peddler. Yes, that one. I said, okay. And they did not have papers. And they were arrested, and they thought that they were Jewish, and they were not. And I said, you are kidding me. No. And so it turns out, years later, I find out from my father that Mrs. Leslie and he spent hours in the evenings, and she was considerably older than he, mm-hmm. doing uh, having English lessons. But those English lessons were really the telling of stories to one another. She had been put in charge of the children for a brief period at Belson before the liberation. And this was the woman who took in the refugees. Gosh. What a surprise. Yeah. When we fight our own suffering, and we all fight it. Who wants to, who wants to suffer? Who wants to feel badly? But when we shun that, without knowing it, we are rejecting one of the greatest gifts. The ability to feel a pain profoundly, feel it for ourselves, which is the only passport that allows you to feel someone else's pain. Anything else is sympathy. To feel empathy, you must have suffered to some degree. Now, I can't imagine what she suffered. And my father shared some stories and some, even now he's 92, he's still living. And I've, I've asked him about them. And he's, there are many stories he's never wanted to tell. And I think that's his right. And probably hers as well. She long ago passed from this world. But I, I think of them with such gratitude and profound affection. So you were three when you first moved three. there and your sister was 10. My sister was 10. So for her, it must have been even more challenging, I would imagine. It was very difficult. Yeah. And she, she was very motherly towards me and very loving. She was a wonderful sister. I tease in stories when I tell stories to the children's schools. I'll tell a lot of stories about growing up. And my sister's always my big stinky sister, I call her. But she was a marvelous sister. I couldn't have asked for better. What about reading? Did you have books that you gravitated toward? Or when did I you loved comic books. Well, my, my favorite comic book of all time was Aquaman. I mean, first of all, I was a Cuban kid, all right? I knew so many stories. My people, so many people died crossing 90 miles of shark-infested waters. How would Aquaman not be your superhero? <laughs> I ask you. Yeah. So there we go. We started yeah. with that. And then by the time I was eight, I was introduced to Charlotte's Web by a Southern librarian. And um, it's, it's a story that I, I have told before to, to children. I tell it frequently, but... Um, tell us. <laughs> it's, um, oh, it's too long to tell, but I can give you an excerpt okay. of it. I had been abandoned for the day uh, unto the indifferent care of that big stinky sister I mentioned. And she, she was, from head to toe, she was in flamingo pink because she had a ballet uh, recital coming up. Then she was walking down the street. It's just mortifying to, to walk with. She was 14. I was seven, almost eight. And I said, why do you got to wear those crazy clothes, man? You look like Pepto-Bismol. Threw up all over you. And so that's how we started. And we just kept bickering. And when we finally got to the corner of Sycamore and Maine, which is where the ballet studio was, she turns around and she looks at me, arms akimbo. And she says, you know what? I am not taking you to ballet class with me today. 
every time I take you with me, okay, you do bad stuff. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> she says, no, every time you do bad stuff, everybody yells at me. And I'm like, I know, he's beautiful. <laughs> because when you're the younger sister, you are never at fault. You're never liable, liable for anything. Um, but that day she decided to leave me at the library. And I did not want to go. It was the Maud M. Burris Public Library. Remember to this day, back when we named the you know public buildings after august members of the community, and her portrait was at the entrance. And my sister said they have air conditioning, and she was pulling every stop to try and get me to go in. What am I going to do in there? You know, because I thought I mean I was not interested in books. And she said, just read a book. I said I don't like no books. Well, she shoved me in and said she'd be back and told me to behave and said if I didn't. If I didn't, and she could tell she was just just reaching. If I, and I, I'm looking at her like, what? <laughs> she will get you. And that's when I, you know, the power of pronouns. She who? She said, the library lady. She don't like no kids. You mess around in there, she'll, she'll, she'll pinch her head off. And I looked at her and said, you're leaving me with a head pincher? <laughs> now she'd frightened me. So I go in and this, with this sort of anticipating this terrifying creature. As I walk in through the shadows of this old library with rolling wood floors that have been slapped down on red Georgia clay with this oscillating fan somewhere in the background doing this. <laughs> that strange lighting in old libraries because they had to protect the books from light. They were, they were animal dyes and vegetable dyes. Um, so it was always sort of, sort of, there was a penumbre to these libraries. I hear, little girl, come here, little girl. And behind this ocean of a desk, there rises this mountain of a woman. She has perfect hair. This is this ovoid. It was 1968, right? She waggles her fingers and she calls me up. She said, come here. I've not seen you in this library before. And I said, well, I know I've been in this library before. I didn't come on purpose. I was pushed. And so she laughs and she says, who pushed you? My sister. Like, who else is going to push me? I mean, I'm thinking, right? She should know this. She seems amused at first. And she says, what's your name? Carmen. Carmen. No, no, Carmen. That's what I said. No, lady, lady, Carmen, not Carmen. Now she's howling. And she says, well, I don't believe my mouth will do that. <laughs> Knowing <laughs> that her southern mouth was going to take that Spanish name and synthesize it into that same extraordinary polysyllabic <laughs> thing again. So she introduced herself. She told me her name was Miss Mary McDonald, that the children called her Miss Mary Mac. And... Um, Immediately, as, I mean, almost instantly, I remember backing away and saying, lady, I'm not, I'm not going to stay here. I just got to stay till my sister comes back. And I explained to her the circumstances that have brought me to you know, here, why I'm a denizen of her his sacred space, right? And she says, oh, but you'll have to have a lab record. And I said, no, I don't need no lab record. I don't like no books. If I had taken a rod out of the card catalog, walked up to her and stabbed her through the heart, that woman could not look. I've looked more stricken. <gasps> I mean, her face turned into a kabuki death mask. And she said, what did you say? I don't remember. Like, you don't say things like that twice when you're a kid, because you know. And she said, you don't like books? Oh, and she just, I mean, she, she went off like Mount Vesuvius, right? Law, loss of life everywhere, right? Little villages swept away, <laughs> animals into the sea. And she said, I'll tell you why you don't like books. And this is the end of the story for now. She points this perfectly buffed, unpolished fingernail, inches from my nose. Her little brows come together and make a little V of consternation. And she says, you do not like books. And she's so close, I can smell the evening in Paris, right? Because it hasn't found you yet. And I said, someone's looking for me. <laughs> and she swore to me, from the minute you were born, every child was born. 
There was a book in this world that had been written for their mind and no other. And if that book and that child find one another, the angels sing. And if they don't? Said I, well, I consider that one of the greatest tragedies that could ever befall a human being. And that day I discovered Charlotte's Web, my book, and it changed my life forever. She was right. How did it change your life? By the time I was into the second chapter, I'd had to back read, and I constantly had to back read, go back, and because comprehension was so poor. But I was taken. I, the world I inhabited when I was reading that book, be it in bed with a flashlight or up in my favorite tree or on the front porch on that sagging wooden step, that world, the physical world around me, slowly eased away. It sounds, it smells, everything. And all that existed was the farm and Fern, and Charlotte, and Templeton. And when she died, it broke my heart. And I went back, I went back to tell her, Miss Mary Mack. And uh, I was sobbing, and I was furious. And I said, she's dead. She's dead. You gave me a dying book. She's dead. And she said, the best books break our hearts. And I said, I don't like books. And she said, well, yes, you do. You love this book. And, she, and I, I was so angry. I didn't want to talk to her about it. And she took it. And I realized I was going to have to give it back. And I, I didn't get that completely. Uh-huh. But she gave me another book that day. And she said, if you like Charlotte's Web, which is still my favorite. It's my first love. You never forget your first yeah. love. But she held out her book and she said, you're going to love Anne of Green Gables. So imagine, I mean, this is the woman who was the purveyor of some of the finest childhood titles. That's what librarians do, the good ones. They don't choose any book. They know the child. They get to understand the child, and then they find the book for the child. When did you know that you were destined to be a storyteller? So if I were trying to put this on a timeline, I would say I loved words and stories because of my community, my father, my mother, the the Cuban community I grew up with, and the Southern children I grew up with who had parents and grandparents who told fabulous stories. We'd sit on the front porch and and hear stories. So I always loved stories. I couldn't tell them, but I loved hearing them. And that, my friend, is key. A good storyteller must first be a good story listener because that's how you learn rhythm and tone, tension, the effect of silence, the raising of the voice, the lowering of the voice. Wonderful voices you can make when you talk like that. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm a bear. I'm a big old bear. Little teeny tiny voice. Oh, my, you look so cute today. Get out of my pocket. Well, where else am I going to go as small as I am? And your pocket is so nice and warm. And so on, right? So I loved voices. I loved the sounds of words. Then they came to the written word. Oh. But as I decided that I loved stories so much. I really wanted to write them. I knew I wasn't meant to. I truly did. I'm not saying that for the purposes of, you know, oh, and this was my path from poverty and hardship. I mean, I really wasn't meant to write. But I love stories. All my life, I've loved stories. And I wanted to write stories. And so the first stories were so hard. And I would, I would plod through grammar books that felt like that my brain was just compressed in a vice but I'd had an experience. When I was in the ninth grade, I was doing poorly in English, and it really upset me because it was the only class I loved. 
My teacher was not a Southern woman. She was Miss Collins, Miss Jolinda Collins, that hailed from somewhere above the Mason-Dixon line. The way she spoke was fascinating because she spoke this kind of English. And she was, her voice was very strong. She was an Amazonian woman. She was tall and Apollonian, serene. All those lovely A words um, that I did not know at the time. So this is what happened. She kept me after class one day. She called out my name and after she dismissed everyone, she said, Carmen Agra, I want you to stay. I need to talk to you. I thought, oh my goodness, what now? Because every kid loves that one, right? So I amble up to her desk and um, shift from foot to foot like you do when they're staring at you. And she says, you're not doing very well in my class. Why is that? And I said, I don't know. I still talk like that. I said, I don't know. It's my favorite class. And she had this look of surprise. She had to you know, shake the confusion out of her head for a moment. And she said, really? I said, yes, but I just, I, I can't keep up with the reading like everyone else. I don't know why. She thought for a moment. She says, do you like what we're reading? Trick question. Trick question. This woman, like, she gives you your grades, right? Uh, but I was already, for better or worse, on the path to saying what you think. And I said, not very much. I really hate this book. And she said, all right, I have something for you. Any other teacher, especially now, I think, in the the world of pedagogy that we inhabit, would have dumbed down the material. She opened a drawer. She pulled out this battered little book. It was thin. She followed it with a second book that was in even worse condition. And she said, this is a dictionary. It's a Webster's. It's not the Oxford, but it'll do. And I said, the what? Never mind. (laughs) Take this. Look up any word that you can't understand in this. And she pointed to that little thin volume. When you finish it, I don't care if it takes you all year. You come back to me. So do I have to write a book report? No, you have to give me an oral summation. I said, what does this mean? You have to tell me what you thought about it and you have to be truthful. I said, hockey, because hockey is the way of my people. I went home, I did I had dinner, I did my chores. I went to bed, I started reading. I thought, this is really dumb. Immediately, I got sucked in. Problem was, there were words in that, that, that thing that, that like weren't even in the Webster's <laughs> Dictionary. And it wasn't a book either. It was wrong. Like five kinds of wrong. They were only doing the talking. Nobody was like telling a story. They were just talking. Like, you know, a play or something. I stayed up the entire night. The next morning, I raced into school. She was not my first class, but I tore into her classroom. Miss Collins, Miss Collins. I slammed these books on her desk and I said, I finished it. And she said, what? I finished it. And then, and I remember just feeling so earnest. I said, did he write anything else? (laughs) She said... Well, some think that Macbeth was not his better work. But however, he kept trying. And yes, I think, I think you will like some of Mr. Shakespeare's other works. And then I had to give her my oral book report about this great thane of Scotland, this Macbeth. And what I learned from Shakespeare, this child who could speak such terrible English only, who, who struggled to, for every word I acquired, was that his language was fluid. His words went together in strange ways that I thought should go together because I was dyslexic. It made sense to me that you'd jumble them about, that you'd come up with. I mean, he created so many words that didn't even exist in the English of the time, as we know now. So I I learned story from my father. I garnered a love of reading from Miss Mary Mack. And I learned the beauty 
of a single word from Delinda Collins and Mr. Bill Shakespeare. The power of words definitely seems to be a theme here. I'd love for you to read the author's note from the rooster who would not be quiet. Roosters sing at sunrise. They also sing at noon, sundown, and in the middle of the night. Roosters sing when they please, and that is all there is to that. Much like roosters, human children are born with voices strong and true and irrepressible. Then, bit by bit, most of us learn to temper our opinions, censor our beliefs, and quiet our voices. But not all of us. There are always those who resist being silenced, who will crow out their truth without regard to consequence. Foolhardy or wise, they are the ones who give us the courage to sing. That speaks to you, Carmen. We're thrilled that your voice is still irrepressible. Thank you so very much. Thank you, you lovely person. Now, we're joined by Dana McDonough, a second grade teacher from Newburgh, New York. Dana was named the 2016 New York State Teacher of the Year. I've seen her in action, and I know the accolade is well-deserved. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the studio. Glad to be here. Wonderful always to have a teacher, but a teacher of the year. Yes, I'm very excited. I loved your recent EDU blog post when you talk about students carrying invisible backpacks is the term you used. Could you talk about that and how other teachers might be mindful of these things that may weigh on students? You know, I am definitely a different teacher than I was at the beginning of my career. When you would have filmed me 23, 24 years ago, you would have seen me in the classroom delivering direct instruction. And as I began my teaching career, I realized my role is bigger than the classroom walls, that I, ha- that I need to reach the parents. And I have grown as a professional based on my children. My children have made me grow because of what they need. And it's more than curriculum. Yes, we need to deliver high quality instruction, but the bottom line is we are developing citizens for our world and to get them ready. I'm from Newburgh. I went to the school that I'm now teaching in as well. And I was driving down the city of Newburgh and I was at a stoplight and I looked at a corner And I saw what looked to be a mom packing things in a backpack. And I just kind of got caught up in that moment. And teachers never get to see that. We're in our classrooms waiting for the kids to come in. They're rushing in with their backpacks and things like that. And I thought that mom, and it's a very depressed part of Newburgh that I was in where I actually was born. And I was thinking, you know, when we receive the children, some of them don't have their homework. Some of them don't have snacks. And we might think some of these kids are not ready to start the day, but we're not seeing the hopes and dreams that were on that are on that corner. So when the mom is putting things in the backpack, I'm thinking to myself, what hopes and dreams is she packing in that backpack as well that we don't see? What kind of things do children carry with them that we don't see? So the next day, as the kids were unpacking their backpacks, I was watching them and then gathered them over at the rug. And I said, what was in your backpack today? And they mentioned, you know, water, snack, things like that. And I said, what's in your invisible backpack? And they all looked at me. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what is it that you carried with you today that I don't see? Um, is there anybody that wants to share anything that might make them unable to learn today? And one of the kids stood up and said, you know, my baby sister was crying all night. I didn't sleep that good. One little girl stood up and said, somebody on the bus is bothering her and she had an upset stomach. And then one little boy stood up and said, 
I was supposed to meet my mother at McDonald's on a court order visit and she didn't show. And I'm thinking all these stories are things we don't get to the bottom to because we don't necessarily have the time. Not that we're not interested, but I'm thinking these are the things that possibly impede their learning day. So I truly believe that teachers, besides what they have to do curriculum-wise, they need to get to know their children. They need to know what barriers are up with these children that may impede their learning. So I feel children carry with them stories, and these stories need to be told. And when you can have a child unpack that backpack that we don't see, there's a sense of trust and a sense of caring. I have kids now come up to me and say, can I share my invisible backpack out in the hallway with you right now? Because they don't want to share it in the classroom. There are kids who will say, I have something to share. And it has gone to sharing very sensitive items, but they know they're in a safe space, to saying, I plan on participating one more time today than I did yesterday. So they're learning goals as well as personal stories. But it is very important that you create that personal culture, that safe culture, that so children are willing to share. So what I would say to teachers is, and it's not like teachers are not willing or want to take this time, that those stories make up those children that are in front of you. And sometimes if you take that time to get to know that child a little deeper, no matter what their age, and they know you truly care, I can only say that I truly believe that the learning will happen. You know, that that bond and that trust is just immeasurable. And I do believe that you could only go forward with that, that they will want to perform. They will want to do their best each day when they know they're in an environment where they feel they are respected and revered for their voices. Ah. Oh. Well, that brings me to the rooster who would not be quiet. As you know, we had Carmen Agrediti on, and what a remarkable book that is. Could you talk about yes, it? Yes, I just was so moved by that story. So I took it into school yesterday and shared it with the children, knowing I was coming today. And I wanted, I first preface the story that um, it's a story about animals and a mayor, Mayor Pepe, I think it is. <laughs> yes. And how, and I didn't want to overtell the story, but I just want to give them some background. And I said, while you're listening to the story, please think about what is happening with the rooster. I love the way she's described the rooster as saucy, saucy galito. And I <laughs> loved her language. She's a great storyteller. And so we were all done with the story and they're all looking at me. They clapped actually. It's funny because sometimes when stories really hit them, they will just naturally clap. And they did. And I think sometimes as a teacher, when you bring an enthusiasm with you to a story, you're just not reading it. You really are excited about it. They also, they were like sitting up straight. They were like all into it. So... I just said, so what do you think? What do you think about what message did this author want to send to you? And one little boy who's from a very, very large blended family, he must be about the middle child. And he said, my older brothers never, never listen to me, but they can't squash me. Oh, So I relate to the, the rooster. <laughs> I can relate to what the rooster was going through. So He says, but sometimes, you know, I just go so so frustrated. So I said, can you think of other ways that you might be able to get your brother's attention? He says, maybe I'll use posters, but I'm never going to give up. I'm going to be just like that rooster. Could you share a story or an anecdote with us about a student who really um, 
was moved. And when you listened to that child, you were talking about respecting children and, and listening to their stories, where it really made a tangible difference in their lives. I, I would go back to the original day that I introduced the invisible back to, back to my classroom, and that boy stood up and shared that very emotional story about his mother not showing up. That that at that moment, I didn't know what kind of response I was going to get that day, bringing that story back into my classroom. Um, but when that boy stood up and he felt so safe in my classroom to share such a personal story because it was on a Monday. It was on a Tuesday the next day because it was a Monday. He was supposed to meet her. I thought it was at that moment that I was impacted by my children and realized the importance of what they have to say. That sometimes their stories take precedent over anything that we have to deliver that day because they have to realize that they have a voice and that their voice is important. And if you take the time to listen to their stories, it makes them feel valuable because there are times, there's families that don't have the time to possibly listen to stories, to um, unearth what they're feeling because there are so many things that happen to them in the course of the day from the time they get up to the end of the day and at night and in the evening that things are happening to them, but they don't necessarily have an audience to share it with. So I've been impacted by my students and their stories, realizing that it is critical that I produce a classroom where their voices are recognized, again, for who they are because their stories are valuable. And that's what makes each one of them unique, is their stories, what they carry with them. And as a, having children at a very young age versus high school students, I feel that you're grabbing them at a very tender, critical age where if they feel they're valued, that they have a leader within them, that if I can grab them at that young age, maybe they can go forward and continue that. I don't know what's going to happen to them. I do keep in touch with my students that, yes, they're physically out of my classroom, but I'm always interested in what they're doing. And I just want them to know that I'm always there. They come back. They leave with a piece of me yes. with them, but they've left so much with me. Aww. And what are some of their hopes and dreams? You know, we just had um, a project called the Dream Jacket, where they are given a template of a jacket, and they put their dreams and hopes on this jacket to share. And it's either career-based or what they dream for the world. And they are very mindful young people, peace, uh, nonviolence, uh, keeping the earth healthy. Some are more personal, like paleontologist, <laughs> uh, president. We always get a president, mm -hmm. um, gymnast, doctor, teachers. So these hopes and dreams will change a hundred times. But the critical thing is asking that question. What are your hopes and dreams? It's getting them to think about them because they are full of answers. They just have to be asked the right question. Thanks so much again to Carmen and Dana for joining us. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possibilities.